It's uh, great to be with you. It's exciting. This feels like a big Sunday uh, because it's our first Sunday, my first Sunday in the building. It's just seemed like the biggest office in the world up uh, to this point. I've been wandering around, so I'm thankful that we're able to meet and that we have a place to meet. I know it's a little different with COVID. It's not ideal, but I am uh, definitely grateful for what God's given us, and I'm thankful for your flexibility as well. I know it's been a little weird to not know where you're going to meet. Last week, we thought we were going to meet in that upper campus over at EV Free, and now we're here, and it's just a, a weird time in the world in general, having to think about these things you've never had to think about before, so we have to be patient with one another, and I'm so glad that you're patient with us as we're trying to figure all these things out. But, you know, however we meet or wherever we meet or whenever we meet, it's good to be together. And I'm especially thankful for the opportunity that we have to study God's word and think long and hard about prayer, what it teaches about prayer. Specifically, Luke chapter 11. If you'll take your Bibles and turn with me once again, we're in Luke chapter 11 and we're walking our way through this chapter verse by verse or phrase by phrase, and we're going slow. I don't think we'll go through the whole rest of the Bible this slowly. Uh, this is our fourth Sunday on Luke chapter 11, and we're still in verse 2. But we're looking at what Jesus says about prayer here super, super slowly for a number of reasons. Uh, the first one being its importance, how important a subject prayer is. If you talk about what the church does, I don't know what the average Christian would say is important the church does. But I do know that if you open up your Bible and begin to make a list of what God says it's important the church does, prayer would be up there near the top. Even if you just take Luke as an illustration, just this one book of the Bible or at least this one writer, you read Luke and it's clear how hard he is working to show us the importance of prayer. It's in Jesus' exhortations. For example, before Jesus ascends to heaven, he talks to his disciples about what it's going to be like while he's gone. And this is actually Luke chapter 17. And basically he says it's going to be hard. And you know, one of the big things that he tells them that they need to do while they wait, Luke 18, verse 1, quote, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to pray and not lose heart. He commands them to pray, and he shows them how. We see the importance of prayer from Jesus' example. As Jesus is about to face the biggest trial of his life, the crucifixion, what does he do? He takes his disciples out to the Mount of Olives, and Luke says this was his custom, actually, and this is Luke chapter 22, and he prays, and then he commands them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And that's before Jesus' death and resurrection, of course, but after, in the book of Acts, he goes up into heaven, and what is the first thing that we find the church doing? You know how the book of Acts opens? The book of Acts opens with a prayer meeting. And actually, it's kind of funny because do you know how the book of Luke opens as well? It opens with a prayer meeting. And that's because Luke wants to show us the importance of prayer. In fact, quick trivia question, or maybe not a trivia question, but a, a question. Where in the Gospels do you find Jesus getting most angry? 
What comes to your mind? One of the images that comes to my mind for sure is when he's cleansing the temple. And you know the reason he gives for driving all those people out of the temple? In Luke, he says, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. I mean, Jesus is serious about prayer. How important is prayer? It's a lot like breathing, praying. How important is breathing? That's not even a a question, right? It's important to us personally. We'll shut the whole world down, actually, for a threat to breathing. (laughs) Prayer is important for us personally, and it's important for us corporately as a church, and I hope I'm beating this drum loud and clear. It should be like our heartbeat. What does that church do? That church prays. Computer programmers program, mechanics mechanic, and real churches pray. I want that to be my culture, my family's culture, our church's culture. We're talking about prayer because prayer is important. And you know, we're looking real carefully at Luke chapter 11 to learn how to pray because prayer is something we keep saying that it's possible to get wrong. A lot of people get prayer wrong. Sometimes people get prayer wrong by focusing mostly on the externals, so what they're wearing when they pray, or how long they pray, or where they pray, or even, probably more tempting, how they sound when they pray. Other people get prayer wrong by viewing it like a work they do in order to earn God's favor. Prayer is grace for the helpless, but they make it a work for the strong. Still others get it wrong by thinking of prayer as something we almost do because of a need in God. And I know this isn't maybe something that they could articulate, but if you look at how some people think about prayer, it's almost like they think of God as being far away and somehow they have to get God to pay attention to them when God's not far at all, away at all when we're praying. He's actually close to us. He's here, and he knows what we need before we ask him, which means, of course, that God designed prayer for a different reason. He didn't design prayer because of a need in him, but instead because of a need in us. I think it's got to be one of Satan's greatest tricks to get us thinking of prayer only as something so hard. Even when we hear sermons on prayer, sometimes we almost think of them as a burden, like God's putting a burden on us. Because the reality is, actually, God created prayer for us because he wants to do things in us as we pray. That's one of the purposes of prayer. Through believing biblical prayer, God does important good things in us that we need. Like, for example, what? One reason God has you pray is because he wants to give you the assurance and confidence that he loves you and that he's at work in your lives. It's part of why Jesus says, call him Father. Because it's how we remember prayer, this amazing relationship that Jesus has made possible for us. The only way we can call God Father is because of the work of Christ on our behalf and the way in which he's adopted us into his family. And so every time we go to God in prayer, it's a reminder of how close we are to him and how close he is to us. Father. Another reason God has you pray is to reorient your view towards him, to reassure you of his love, 
to reorient your view. Sometimes living life feels a little bit like being in the middle of a nightmare, actually. And you've had nightmares, I'm sure, when you're lying in bed, you have a nightmare, and everything seems so real, and you're so frightened until you wake up, and when you wake up, you're so glad you did because it's like, man, shoo, this is what's real. That wasn't real. This is what's real. And, and I'm saying prayer is one way God wakes us up spiritually because we're going through life, and everything seems so frightening, and people seem so big, and our circumstances seem so difficult, and we're so worried about everything, and then we go to God in prayer. And what happens in prayer? God is helping us get things back in perspective. This is what's real. And what is real is that he is at the center. And that's why we say, hallowed be thy name, actually. We're remembering who we're praying to. This is what he's like, and this is what's important. God glorifying himself. A third reason God has us pray, one, to reassure us, two, to reorient us, and three, to realign our desires with his sovereign plan. And let me say that one again, because this is really where we're headed today. And because for a lot of people, the reason they're praying is really the opposite. God designed prayer as a way of bringing our desires back in line with his plan. But the reason they're praying is because they're trying to bring God's plan into line with their desires. In other words, they have something that they want, and they're hoping through prayer they can get God to conform to their will. I mean, God has something he says he wants to happen, something he has planned. And yet, most of the time, the problem is what God wants to happen doesn't really matter that much to us. Maybe we give it lip service, we say it matters, but it's not what makes our hearts beat fast, you know? And one of the ways that God uses prayer is to get our wants working right again, where we want what he wants. And I get that from the fact that Jesus teaches us to pray here in Luke 11:2, Father, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And obviously we need to talk about what that means exactly, but as I start out, I should say it's a request that we're making of God. And again, this is not just words. This is something Jesus is telling us we should want. And what we should want is God's kingdom to come. It's a request, and it's a statement of hope, really, because it's a future reality, this kingdom. It's not here. We want it to come. And so it's kind of like, as I'm reading about this kingdom in the Bible, what is supposed to happen is I start going to God in prayer, saying, God, this is what I'm putting my hopes in. And I guess that's actually the word I would use for this, hope. You remember maybe how I've been trying to summarize how Jesus teaches us to pray with some rules for prayer and specifically some key words to help you know how to pray. And the first was believe. When you pray, say, Father. When you pray, make sure you're believing the gospel because that's the only way you could call God Father. That was one. And then last week, the word was remember, believe, remember. 
that second, hallowed be your name. You, God, are different and you're better and you're set apart and I want to see you glorified. Third, today, hope. How do you pray? These are our three points so far. Believe, remember, hope. And that is your kingdom come. And actually, another word I was tempted to use for that is the word adjust. Because what's happening here is that we already have all these hopes as we come to God in prayer. Obviously, that's why we're praying. We have things that we're wanting to happen. I mean, we're always wanting and we're always hoping, and we're always thinking, this would be awesome if this happened. And so we're praying because we have these things that we think, if only this would happen, then my life would be perfect. And that's totally normal. And we all understand that. And that's part of what's going on in prayer. And yet the problem is, so often, the main thing we should be wanting and the main thing we should be hoping for is actually missing in our prayers. That's what I'm saying. It's not anywhere in our prayers. In prayer, we're hoping, that's why we're there, but we're not hoping in the main thing. It's kind of like me with my children, as a father, as an example. I've got all kinds of hopes for my children. Like I hope that they would be healthy, or I hope that they would have good jobs when they grow up. And there's no problem with those hopes. As long as I realize there are some things that are even more important and more fundamental for them that I should be wanting for them and hoping for them, like that they would know God and honor God. And if for some reason I started acting like them being healthy or them going to a good school or them having a good job was more important than knowing God, something is going wrong, and I would need to adjust what I'm putting my hopes in. And prayer, I'm saying, is kind of how we can do that spiritually. This is what I should want. This is what I should be excited about. This is what I should be hoping in. I think I told you a couple weeks ago, I'm reading a book on prayer by someone named Gary Millar, Calling on the Name of the Lord, a Biblical Theology of Prayer. And he walks through almost all of the biblical passages on prayer. And one of the things that he says that's interesting is that prayer is designed by God for a fallen world. He calls what we did in the garden and what we'll do after God completes our salvation something different than prayer. And I have to think about that a bit. But he says that because if you look at where prayer started and what's happening throughout Scripture in true prayer, what you see is that prayer is a response to promises God's made. So God takes the initiative, God makes a promise, and God's people respond to that promise by asking God to keep it, to keep his promise in prayer. We're calling on God to do what he's promised. And this is a pretty sweet thing to start thinking about because what's happening when we pray so often is that we start with us. We start with our view of the world. And so we've got these things we want, we have these hopes, and part of why we have the hopes we do is because we've got all these things that the world is telling us will make everything better. The world makes promises. And we don't even think a lot of times, why do I want what I want? Why is that so pressing for me? Why does this feel so urgent? A lot of times it feels urgent 
because it's what we're being told we should want. And the world is making all of these promises about what will happen if we have that. And we're tempted to put our hope in what everybody else is putting their hope in. We're in real prayer. It's like we're fighting that. We're coming back to God's promises and his view of what will make everything better and seeking to adjust our hopes back to that. You're working as you're praying at taking your hopes and your expectations for the future, what you want, and fixing your hope in your hope. In other words, in prayer, it's like you're remembering, this is my hope. This is God's plan. This is what God has promised he would do. And I'm actually going to hope in my hope. And I say that because that's what Jesus means when he teaches us to pray, your kingdom come. This is a request, obviously, not a statement. We're not saying your kingdom is coming. We're saying we want your kingdom to come. But the thing is, we're saying we want your kingdom to come. <laughs> we want your kingdom to come because as we look at our Bibles, God's very clear that kingdom is coming. You hear what I'm saying? This is what God's plan is. This is God's promise. And so this is what I should want most. And in prayer, it's like we're saying, this is what I want, even if I don't want it. I want to want it. And that's what I mean by hoping in your hope. And in a lot of ways, that's what I think this prayer request is teaching us. It's reminding us as we pray, not just to talk about what we want with God, but to actually seek to bring what we want back in line with his great plan. And Jesus is saying here, and all throughout the Gospels, really, that his great plan has to do with this coming kingdom. Which is why it's important we understand exactly what he means by your kingdom come. This request is calling us to hope in prayer, but if this request is going to have any meaning, you have to know what you're talking about when you talk about God's kingdom coming. Which is a problem sometimes, honestly, for a lot of people, if ever there was a phrase in the Bible that there's confusion on, it's certainly kingdom of God and your kingdom come. And this is where we need to get into a more specific explanation because in prayer we're supposed to be placing our hope in God's future plan, but sometimes people have a hard time hoping in that because they're confused about what the kingdom even is. I mean, what exactly are you hoping when you hope God's kingdom will come. If you look at the phrase itself and start with the word come, that obviously shows us this is not something happening right now exactly. Otherwise, we wouldn't be praying for it to come. And actually, the word come Jesus uses has like a burst on the scene suddenly kind of meaning. It's not a, a gradual coming that he's talking about. It's not here, and then it's here. That's what it means. It's something all of a sudden. We're looking at our Bibles, and we're, we're seeing the prophets telling us about a kingdom, and we're looking around, and we're not seeing the kingdom, and so we're praying, God, make it happen. We want to see this kingdom in front of us. 
Actually, maybe the, the simplest way to understand what we're asking for when we say your kingdom come is to look at the way Jesus puts it over in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, where he's teaching his disciples to pray as well. Only there, after he says, your kingdom come, what does he add? He adds, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's explanatory. And it's that second phrase, of course, that's important for understanding the first. What does your kingdom come mean? It means God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, God has a will. He has something that he wants. And Jesus is specifically talking here about his moral will, what, he, what is right, what he loves. And God's got a place where he dwells now. He's got a will, and he's got a place where he dwells in a special and unique way. That's called heaven. And one of the beautiful things about heaven is that everything in heaven is happening exactly the way it should. His moral will is completely obeyed, and absolutely everybody in heaven knows that God is king. There's no question. And everybody in heaven does exactly what the king wants. And so when you pray your kingdom come, what you're praying essentially is that you would see what happens up there where everybody knows God is king and where everything God wants is done exactly happen down here as well. Which fundamentally I'm saying is what we should be wanting and hoping for most as Christians. We're future-focused people. If you meet a Christian who is not excited and not confident about the future, you're meeting a Christian where something is seriously going wrong. The problem, though, for a lot of us is that our hopes for the future are too little, and this is what I want you to hear, because one of the biggest problems we have in life, and even in our prayers, is not that we're wanting too much or hoping too much, it's that we're hoping too little. And what I mean is, what's urgent for you? You know, you want a good job. You want to own a home. I want to own a home. That sounds nice. You want to be healthy. That's great. But Jesus here is telling you that fundamentally, you should be hoping for something much bigger than that. What you should be longing for more than anything else is this awesome future moment when it's like the sky rips open and we see heaven coming down to earth. That's your kingdom come. Heaven on earth. You're praying what's happening up there would happen down here. Which means specifically what? It means that the effects of the curse would be reversed and that sin would be destroyed, and that everybody would know God is king, and that everybody would see the beauty of Jesus, and that sinners would be judged, and that God's enemies would be punished, and that everyone left on the planet would always do exactly what God wants all the time. And you know, one of the reasons you should be praying that and hoping for that is not just because it sounds like a nice idea, like, wouldn't this be great, you know? But instead, because that's actually the plan, the Bible tells us, God has in mind for the future of the universe. It is this perfect kingdom come. And I think this is really something huge, and yet 
so easy for us to miss because we have this wrong idea of what the future has in store for us as Christians. Because we often think of our eternal future in such spiritual terms that we don't understand how physical it's going to be as well. We don't get the plan. And so it's like we think of God's future plan for us as us floating around on a cloud or something playing harps. And so obviously when we go to prayer, most of us are not very excited about it. Like, yay, heaven. But what's really good is earth, which is part of what I love about this word, kingdom, really, because a kingdom is a pretty physical thing, isn't it? It tweaks the way we think about the future. It grounds it in reality. I mean, just think about a kingdom, and that's the word Jesus is using to describe God's future plan. That's actually the message he sent the disciples out to preach. That's actually the way Jesus summarized the whole theme of the Bible. And a kingdom always involves a couple of things, at least. First, it involves a king. It's hard to have a kingdom without a king. Someone who is ruling and able to rule. And that's the heart of this word kingdom. It has to do with God's reign. What do kings do? They kingdom, in a sense. They king. And yet a kingdom is more than just ruling. It also requires, second, a people. Who will be ruled? And third, it needs a place as well, a place where the king can exercise his rule over his people. And you need to hear this part so you can understand the meaning. So while obviously there's a sense in which you could say there's a kingdom of God going on right now as we speak, we might even call this God's universal kingdom. And I'm going to get a little technical here for a moment. But obviously, at this moment, God is king. And he's always been king. The Lord reigns, the Bible says. Read the Psalms if you want some examples. And he's an everlasting king. He reigns forever. And he's king right now, even over people who don't know he's king. And as a king, he's accomplishing his purpose right now, even by using people who don't recognize his authority over their lives, which is awesome. God is king over this universe. And everything everywhere is part of his kingdom. And this kingdom exists regardless of whether people like it or not, which is incredibly good news and something we should be thankful for. But that's not the kingdom Jesus is speaking about here because we're praying this kingdom will come. Which means the kingdom Jesus is talking about is some future kingdom. And this is where it would be good for me to preach the whole gospel of Luke. Because this is a major theme in the Gospel of Luke. Even if you think just a, a chapter earlier, Jesus sent the disciples out to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And you have to think about that a little because the disciples at that point didn't even understand the cross. So what were they preaching? They were preaching all those great Old Testament promises. And what's good news, the good news that they were preaching is, is not just that God is ruling in heaven right now. They were talking, and Jesus is talking here, about a specific kingdom, one that theologians have called the mediatorial kingdom of God. There's the universal kingdom of God, and then there is the mediatorial kingdom, which is a big word I know. I, I can barely say it myself. But the idea is very important, and it's kind of key 
to the whole story of Scripture as well. And someday I want to start a class here where we just walk through the whole story of Scripture, and we're going to talk a lot about that. Because the whole story of the Bible, really, is a story about how God makes that kingdom happen. And I'm, I'm so tempted to preach the whole Bible right now. But at least let me give you an overview. If you start at the beginning, I'm talking Genesis chapter 1, which, of course, describes creation. And you remember, I'm sure, how at the high point, God created man. And when God creates man, he says something very important, Genesis 1, 26. And God said, you remember this, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion, remember that word, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God is saying that one of the things that makes man distinct from everything else is that he's made in God's image, and that's important, but what does it mean exactly? That's why I kind of underline the word dominion. The next few words at least give us a hint. We were made to represent God's kingship on earth. The word image tells us something about our relationship with God, but it also tells us something about our responsibilities to God. Back when, and I'm fast-forwarding a lot of biblical theology here, so stick with me, but back when God made this world, he gave us this huge responsibility to function as a kind of king and son, as his representative, really, filling, ruling, and subduing the earth for his glory. And what I mean is, while we know, obviously, God is the only true and great high king, he decided to exercise his rule in this world through a chosen human representative, or you might say a go-between, a mediator, a man. In other words, as humans, we were put on this planet to serve God by bringing this whole earth into line with his great purposes, which we would see if we had time in chapter 2 of Genesis, include experiencing his special presence as well. And that's important. The original plan was perfect people in this perfect world with this perfect relationship with God. And that's a picture, basically, of what we're talking about when we talk about the kingdom of God. That is the plan for the universe. Looking back, God originally planned to rule this world through chosen human representatives who would speak and act for him and make the whole world a place for perfect people to enjoy perfect communion with him forever. And yet, of course, we know that the original chosen human representatives, Adam and Eve, totally failed in the mandate given them by God. They refused to listen and trust God. And as a result, they brought this world into what looks like chaos, really, as they submitted themselves to Satan's rule instead. And this is huge, you have to see. Instead of ruling over this world as God's chosen representatives, they, in a sense, handed that responsibility over Satan to rule this world, you might say, in their place, which is why I think we see him described as the ruler of this world, the God of this age. And obviously at that point, that was such high treason that God could have just written man off and he could have been finished with his great goal of a visible earthly kingdom, which he governed through a chosen human representative. But we know, of course, that he didn't. And one way we know that 
that plan that's pictured in Genesis is still clearly in place is because there are other passages in the Bible that actually comment on what happened in Genesis. Like, for example, Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is a commentary on Genesis 1. And we see that the writer in Psalm 8 is just amazed that God has any concern for man. And he's especially stunned by this privilege that God's given man. He says, you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him. This is verse 5 of Psalm 8. With glory and honor, you've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the path of the seas, which is his way of saying that the fall didn't change God's plan in relation to the earth. God created man to represent him by ruling the planet perfectly. That's still on. And yet, even though that's the plan, we don't see that right now. Of course, that's the problem. And the writer of Hebrews makes that clear. In Hebrews chapter 2, and he's quoting Psalm 8. He's explaining it for us. Actually, one of the things you want to learn as you read your Bible is something called intertextuality. That's like another funny word. But it just means the Bible's always quoting the Bible. <laughs> and so there's so many, so much of the New Testament is the Old Testament, actually. And here in Hebrews chapter 2, he's continuing on this theme, quoting Psalm 8, and he's explaining it for us. And he says, now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. So this is future, the world to come. There's a world to come, and this world to come is not something God gave angels the right to rule. He continues, now quoting Psalm 8, and explaining in verse 8 that God has put everything in subjection under man's feet, Hebrews 2.8. In other words, he gave man the right to rule as his representative. He continues, Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. So this is a big responsibility. And yet, at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. To who? Man. This is God's plan. Man was created to rule from and rule over the earth on God's behalf, Genesis 1. And even though we fell, that's something God still wants, Psalm 8, but this is something that's not happening right now because of sin, the way God designed Hebrews 2, which is a big part of why he sent Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1, God became man, he died and rose again, and Paul says, Ephesians 1, ascended into heaven, where he's now seated far above all rule and all power and all authority and all dominion and above every name that is named, and Paul says, he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which tells us the ascended Jesus has been given the right to rule as God's chosen human representative over the earth. And the Old Testament tells us he will. And look, this is where it gets exciting because the good news is not just that you're forgiven of your sins and then you die. The Bible's filled with these great promises of what God is going to do through Jesus in the future. And one of the great promises of Scripture is that just as God the Father originally intended to indirectly govern the physical world through the first Adam, he will one day govern the world through the last Adam, or God the Son. And in case I'm not being clear, I'm saying there's going to be a time when the Messiah physically rules over this earth. It didn't happen at his first coming. He gave us glimpses, 
for sure. That's why he could actually say to the Pharisees, the kingdom of God is in your midst and you're rejecting it because he was giving them a glimpse of what would happen when he rules over this earth. He would reverse the curse and we don't see that happening right now, but he's gonna return and he's gonna fulfill man's mandate to rule over the earth perfectly. And you can read about that in places like Isaiah chapter two which says Isaiah chapter two, you might wanna write it down or flip there, but Isaiah chapter two, all of these prophecies bring the future into to focus. Isaiah chapter two says, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of all mountains. The mountain of the house of the Lord, the, the, the temple. And it shall be lifted up above all hills and all nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And the picture is of this coming kingdom with Jerusalem as the capital city and nations coming from everywhere to this city to learn about God. And this is gonna be a time of peace and prosperity because if you look at Isaiah chapter 11 the world's going to have this perfect king and his delight Isaiah 11 chapter 3 shall be in the fear of the Lord he shall not judge by what he sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked and there's even going to be a transformation in the physical world at this point the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child lead them. The cow and bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Hallowed be thy name. Isaiah is telling us about this time when Jesus returns and what Adam couldn't do and what even the whole nation of Israel couldn't do, he's going to come and do perfectly. He is going to rule over this earth as God's chosen king. And you see how this is going to work out over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul's speaking about the resurrection. You know this chapter. And he describes the future. He says Christ rose first, and then he's going to return. And at his coming, those who belong to Christ will rise from the dead. This is verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 15. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Those who belong to Christ are going to rise from the dead when he returns. And then Paul fast forwards to the next part of the plan, return, resurrection of the dead, and then fast forward, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power for, verse 25, and he explains why he had to fast forward, why there needs to be some time between the second coming and when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father, for he must reign 
until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And I hope I'm not losing you because there's a lot in here. But I'm saying you put the Old Testament and the New Testament together and you see there's going to be this time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming when we see Jesus succeeding in the responsibility that was originally given to man way back in the Garden of Eden. And as believers, we're actually going to be there with him because he promises that he's going to share his rule with those who have been united to him. Revelation tells us that. Revelation 2.26, he's writing the church in Thyatira, and Jesus encourages them, only hold fast what you have until I come. Revelation 2.26, the one who conquers and keeps my words until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as myself have received. I myself have received authority from the Father. And then chapter 3, verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, which is huge and it's worth singing about. And in Revelation 5:10, people are, they're saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God for, from every tribe and language and people and nation and what? You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. When? When shall they reign on the earth? Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 4. After Jesus' return, he says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who's the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into a pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehead or hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And that's what you call the millennial kingdom. And and the great plan of God to have man reign on this earth is fulfilled as the ultimate man rules and shares his rule with his people, after which he finally and fully defeats the devil and judges the living and the dead and takes on death itself once for all and even throws death into the lake of fire, after which this thousand-year kingdom I've been describing transitions into an eternal kingdom where the Father and Jesus are on the throne in New Jerusalem and believers rule forever on what's called the new earth in Revelation 21, 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In Revelation 22, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. 
And the reason I'm going on and on about this is because that's the kingdom we're longing for. And while I totally understand getting lost in some of the details, I get lost in a lot of the details. I have to go back and be like, wait, how does this work out exactly? And sometimes it's really clear, and then other times it seems a little bit more confusing how it's going to work out. But the main thing is that it's going to work out. And whether or not we understand or even agree on every last detail or not, God wants us to be putting our hope in what he's going to do through Jesus in the future. And that's why we're praying, your kingdom come. Are you praying, your kingdom come? Are you longing for the return of Jesus? How do we pray? We want gospel-driven prayers. Yes, Father. We want God-centered prayers. Hallowed be your name. And we want future-focused prayers. Your kingdom come. How do we pray? We believe, we remember, and we hope. Which takes work. That's the thing. Because we've already got hopes, most of us. But the problem is most of our hopes are way too small. Like, I hope I don't get sick. I hope I live a few more years. I hope I can buy a house. I hope I can have a nice retirement. Those hopes come up kind of naturally. But as believers, we need to hope bigger because we have a hope that's bigger. The Bible tells us there's a day coming when everything is changing. A day when the one who's sitting at the right hand of God the Father is going to be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and fulfilling all the mind-blowing promises we read in the Bible about the kingdom of God coming. And part of the reason God's given us prayer is to help us remember that and want that, to not fall asleep. Prayer is a means God's given us to stay awake, and it's really important you do stay awake. Because if you don't, the day Jesus returns to establish his kingdom isn't going to be a joyous one. It's going to be terrifying. If you're not wanting the kingdom of God, you're going to experience the judgment of God. So stay awake, church. Stay awake. How? Pray. Pray believing. Pray remembering. Pray hoping. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Let's pray. Lord, the Bible reveals something so big to us. You're so kind to give us your plan for the universe. And Lord, we're like little children. We're studying. We don't understand everything exactly. We get lost on this verse, that verse, figuring out how it all fits together. But God, you have revealed your great plan, and you are going to keep all your promises, and you're going to defeat evil, and you're going to reverse the curse, and you're going to judge your enemies, and you're going to establish a perfect kingdom of which Genesis 1 only gives us a glimpse where your people are going to be in your presence experiencing your blessing forever and ever and ever. And God, we want that kingdom to come. Please don't, please don't let us fall asleep. Please 
don't let us be people who are living as if this world right now, as it is, is all there is, and then we die. Lord, help us to remember your plan is much bigger than that, and to want it, Lord, to want it. Help us to be a church that wants your return, and that is praying with the writer of Revelation, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And we pray this now in your name. Amen.